Welcome everyone to the PWGC Environmental Echo. Today we're going to be talking about brownfields. I know that's a hot topic in New York City and in Long Island, and we've got two guests with us today. We've got Andy Lockwood, a senior vice president from PWGC. We also have Jennifer Lewis, a senior project manager from PWGC. And I'm your host, Paul Boyce, president and CEO of PWGC. So, if there are any questions, comments, or concerns regarding this podcast, or if you got one and more information, you can always reach us on our website, which is pwgrocer.com backslash podcast, and we look forward to hearing from our listeners. So, let's just dive right into this, as we always do with our topics. And Jennifer, Andy, why don't you guys try to explain or tell me what a brownfield exactly is? I'm, I'm sure people are dying to know. A brownfield is a, is a site that has actual or perceived uh, environmental issues um, and those issues uh, could be historical issues um, uh, in New York City on Long Island um, uh, former industrial sites uh, that uh, gas station sites uh, dry cleaning sites sites that had uh, historic fill deposited in them to build up a wetlands uh, to make the site suitable for development. And uh, those sites are now um, being rezoned, or, uh, maybe for a, a higher use, you know, going from industrial to uh, a mixed-use development, a commercial development, or a, a strictly residential development. Uh, and, you know, uh, developers are somewhat reluctant sometimes to uh, take on that that site um, because of those issues and so in New York State um, the DEC has uh, you know in order to incentivize the development of those properties uh, uh, developed a program a New York State Brownfield cleanup program the BCP BCP can you guys describe what that is? Who's eligible? How do you get into the program? You know, what's available to, to people that are looking to, to clean up a site and, and redevelop it? Uh, the Brownfield Cleanup Program is administered by the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, the DEC, uh, and they work in conjunction with the New York State Department of Health. Uh, because overall, the most important thing that we care about is the health of people that are going to be living on these properties. Uh, so the fundamentals of the program include the investigation of the property in terms of what contamination may exist at the site. Jennifer, who is eligible for this BCP, this Brownfields Cleanup Program? Uh, it's actually easier to discuss who is not eligible for the program. In New York State, uh, you cannot be a Class 1 or a Class 2 inactive hazardous waste site. Uh, you cannot have an active order on consent on the site. Um, Generally, other than that, you are eligible for the Brownfield Cleanup Program as long as you have uh, a certain level of contamination at the site. So what, what, what qualifies as that minimum level of contamination? Uh, that will actually depend on what, uh, you in what is the intended use of the property or the perceived intended use of the property. All right. For instance, you know, we, we deal with a lot of developers that like to go in maybe some mixed use. They may have some, you know, whatever. Um, commercial businesses on a first floor or two, and then if it's a high-rise, they may have a few stories of residential. What would that be? So in that case, they'd have to meet the strictest use of the property, which would be the residential. So they'd want to meet the restricted residential soil cleanup objectives. And 
uh, that actually uh, brings back another point is that you have to show contamination on your site that originated from your site. It cannot be contamination migrating from a neighboring site. Briefly, how do you guys go about demonstrating that? You know, what's what's the key to saying, okay, this happened here as opposed to it came from one of my neighbors or somebody further away? So we start off with a phase one site investigation that uh, lets us go into the history of the property and we can identify potential sources of contamination and where those sources may exist in the property. Then we do the phase two investigation, which is a more intrusive study. Uh, It involves collecting soil, groundwater, or soil vapor samples. And we analyze those samples for a specific list of compounds. And then we compare them to the state standards to identify if there is actually contamination that exists on the site um, and that originates from the site. Usually we can tell if it originates from the site if we find it in the soil samples above the water table. Uh, The reason why we look for it above the water table is that contamination may migrate on the water table from a nearby site. So if you just find it in the groundwater or you just find it in the soil vapor, you're not 100% sure it's your issue. Interesting. So in my mind, you know, and I'm sure in others, undertaking an endeavor like this to clean up a property that you didn't make the mess, right? It's going to cost some money. So what incentives are there available to people who go into this program, you know, to to get them in, to attract them, to want to do something like this, to to do something that's beneficial, to to, to redevelop, you know? Obviously, the, the benefits from an economic standpoint or a housing standpoint, but what about to the to the guy that's you know going to under guy or gal that's going to undertake this this project? What kind of incentives are well, out there? Let's talk about first the two different types of of um, participants. There's there's a volunteer, and then there's a participant. Correct. Uh, the participant they own the program when the environmental and cause the environmental So they own condition. the property. They, they, right. The original property owner. But, okay. in, but in New York State, since they did away with the voluntary cleanup program, uh, a PRP, a, a, a primary responsible party, uh, only has uh, the, the BCP program uh, or the, uh, a class one or class two inactive hazardous waste site program to, to get into. Um, uh, and, and, and to uh, go through a, 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 a regulated program to get to the end point where you get some type of notice of completion or notice of satisfaction that your environmental issue is, is, has, has been taken care of. Um, so then the volunteer. Uh, so the volunteer is someone that uh, maybe just purchased the property recently um, uh, went through their due diligence, did a phase one, phase two, in order to uh, complete the property transaction, which is pretty standard in New York State nowadays, and um, you know knows that there's some environmental concern, but they didn't cause it. Now they're eligible for the BCP program as a volunteer, and as a volunteer, you can get both the tax credits and the liability protection that the program offers. So tax credits, that to me, that's incentive, right? That is the uh, largest incentive that most people think of when they think of the Brownfield Cleanup All Program. Right. Yeah, they're not asking us about uh, 
the liability protection. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, how much money can I get, Jennifer? Yes. <laughs> right, right. So it, it's my understanding that there's different types of tax credits, right? And two of them that come to mind are the site prep credit and the tangible property credit. Jennifer, can you explain the difference between those two types of tax credits for a volunteer? Sure. Uh, so the site prep uh, credit should be considered, uh, it, it's also called the remediation credit. It is all of the costs that go into actually remediating the property. Uh, and that is more than just the cost of disposing of soil or uh, doing some type of treatment. That also includes your legal fees, your environmental consultant fees, uh, your engineering fees, your um, uh, supportive excavation fees. You have to be able to do this work safely. Uh, you can't undermine your neighboring building just to remediate your site. Um, uh, there, there's uh, several other things that can, uh, fencing can go into um, uh, the remediation credit, whatever it takes to actually remediate your site in a safe manner. All your uh, contaminated soil transport and disposal. Yes. Uh, the actual investigation of the site once you enter the program that's when the clock starts or that's when the um the ticker starts going on what you can receive credit on is is there a limit or a maximum or is there a cap on how much is creditable if that's the right term uh on the site remediation portion there is not a cap uh, on the tangible property credit which we also call the development credit there is a cap um so this is uh, this portion of the tax credit is best used for a person that is going to redevelop a site. You don't need to redevelop a site to enter the BCP uh, program, but it is the most lucrative way to get uh, additional tax credits back. Um, the tax credit cap for the tangible property credits is a lesser of one of these three options. Uh, $35 million for a, um, uh, a property which can go up to $45 million if it is an industrial property. Uh, that's uh, option one. Option two is three times the cost of your site remediation. So if your site remediation costs $3 million, you can get $9 million on the property development credit. The third option is a percentage that is based upon certain criteria. You start off with a 10% baseline, and if you meet certain requirements that- 10% of what? 10% of your uh, tangible property costs. Okay. Okay. So if your building is going to uh, cost $100 million to construct, you can get $10, $10 million, million on that Got it. version. Thank you. Uh, so it starts off with a 10% baseline, and it can go up in 5% increments based upon certain things. If you meet a track one cleanup, which is the strictest cleanup level, then that's another 5% bonus. If you have, um, if you're in, um, a brownfield opportunity area, that's another 5% bonus, and that will cap out at 24%. So of those three options, whichever is the lesser is what will constitute your tangible property credit. Uh, and I would just like to chime in there that uh, Jen obviously knows what she's talking about. Uh, she put together a, a, uh, a Excel spreadsheet that she uses to uh, on a, on a, a site by site basis and based on the very nitty gritty specifics of the potential redevelopment for a client what their potential uh, uh, remediation tax credit and uh, tangible tax credit might be um, and 
uh, you know, it's really helpful to our clients to really understand that information before they get too far into the into the project. Absolutely. Um, and you know, uh, as a as a as a company, you know, we can offer our clients the best service the sooner we get involved in the project. So a lot of times we have uh, clients that are uh, engaging PW Grocer before they own the property. They understand the the, the BCP program to an extent, and uh, you know want us to do that due diligence diligence part of the uh, uh, property transaction, the phase one, phase two. They want us involved in the purchase sale agreement because they can use that information to affect the sale price of the property. You know, we usually generate some type of cost estimate at that point for our clients. And then Jen can do her calculations on her uh, tax credit, potential tax credits through the program and they can see, okay, you know, these are the environmental uh, concerns. This is the uh, probable cost to cure. These are the potential tax credits if I could go into the program. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if they wait too long and they're contacting us, you know, after they've already purchased the property and sometimes just doesn't work out because the uh, problem is a lot bigger than the uh, potential benefits of the program. I mean, th this to me, this is a real incentive. I mean, the, the tangible property credit or development credit, as you call it, you know, you had these three different options and it's the, the least of the three. It, it sounded like, uh, gosh, the, the one you mentioned was 35 to $45 million. If that ended up being the least of your three, I mean, uh, it's a tremendous benefit to someone looking to, to possibly redevelop a site that's got these issues. Sure. We actually have a couple of sites that are looking at that being the lesser of the three, and those are going to be some amazing developments. <laughs> that, that will certainly help. I mean, are there any other factors that, going in, that go into calculating these, these credits? Like, what are some of the other aspects? Andy mentioned this, this Excel spreadsheet that you've developed, you know, at PW Grocer to, to help people with this. What, are there anything we, we didn't cover that might be, that might be of interest? Sure. Uh, I find a lot of the clients, they like to have that spreadsheet. They like to see, you know, what that value uh, could be. And they compare that to what um, the BCP is going to do to their construction schedule. Uh, going through the uh, Brownfield Cleanup Program can be time intensive, uh, but if you start it at the right time, it can actually kind of go along with your permitting process and flow through very nicely. You're, you're leading right into my next question, which was going to be is, how long does it take to complete this stuff? You know, I... It, talking about investigations, remediations, and you know, how from start to finish, you know, I mean, does this add to the overall process to the time someone gets a, you know, certificate of completion or, uh, uh, you know, certificate of occupancy for the site? Uh, yeah, it, it could add to the schedule, but ideally, if we get in at the beginning phases of the development before they've even purchased the property, we can usually fit it into their schedule to create a little, uh, little to no delay. 
Uh, so once after we finish doing a phase two investigation and we confirm that there is contamination there that will make the site eligible for the Brownfield cleanup program, uh, PWGC will prepare an uh, application that we submit to the DEC that uh, provides details on the site, its history, and what the intended use of the uh, site is. Uh, from there, uh, once the application is accepted, we, um, uh, the ticker starts going on what we can collect for the uh, tax credits. Uh, the next phase is doing a remedial investigation. It's similar to a phase two, but it's more robust. It requires a lot more sampling, um, uh, more areas that you have to uh, collect these samples from. We prepare a report on that. We submit that to uh, the state. They review it, the DEC and the DOH. Um, once they are uh, happy with the report, they approve it, and then we can go on to the next phase, the remedial action work plan. This is where we start planning how we're going to remediate the site. Um, this is what the contractor has to implement as he's doing his uh, construction. A lot of the times we like to incorporate the construction and the remediation as much as possible. So a uh, property might be developing a building with a basement. Part of our remedial action work plan will be excavate the contaminated soils. So in this case, the developer is not seeing any added expense. For the most part, they're not seeing any added expenses that they weren't going to incur anyway. Um, now, all throughout this process, there are a lot of steps. I, I really compressed it, uh, but there's a lot of documentation that has to be done. That's in the form of uh, work plans, reports, and then there are mandatory public comment periods. Uh, 30 days for each public comment period, except the remedial action work plan. That one is a 45-day public comment period because, you know, that's a very important document. And um, the state wants to make sure that the appropriate parties have enough time to review everything and get their input in. So, uh, you know, the real fun part starts when the remedial action is implemented and the construction of the building starts. Uh, once we finish whatever our plan details, which might be the removal of contaminated soil, uh, some other treatment methods, and then typically uh, installation of a site cover, which many times is the, the foundation of the building, the concrete slab. Once that site is fully capped, usually uh, you know, PWGC's time at the site ends, and we're just finishing up our final reports so that the site can obtain its um, certificate of occupancy. Okay, so from start to end, for say PW Grocer, if that makes it a little bit easier. How long are we involved? I would say the initial uh, part from the application to the uh, preparation of the remedial action work plan could take up to a year. You know, we have some flexibility on how long that takes. And then the actual implementation of the remedial action is really dependent on somebody else's schedule, usually That's the construction contractor. Construction based, yep. Yep. Okay. And then once you know, our, uh, our final elements are in the ground or whatever our plan calls for, we can usually be finished very quickly thereafter. Uh, another term that I often hear associated with BCP or Brownfields is an end zone. What's, what is an end zone? Can you guys ex explain that to our listeners? Uh, sure. Uh, so let me first explain why an end zone is important. Sure. Uh, throughout New York State, any site uh, originally could enter the BCP program without uh, facing certain criteria. In 2015 or so, uh, the program was re reworked to make it um, 
there was too much incentive already in New York City for property development. So they realized they didn't always need the Brownfield cleanup program to further that incentive. Uh, so what they did was they changed the program so that any city with a population of one million people or more, which in New York is only New York City, uh, would have to face one of three criteria or gateways to get into the program. Uh, one gateway is the end zones. Uh, another gateway is if the property is underutilized or underwater. It means the remediation cost will cost more than the property is worth. And the third gateway is uh, if they're using uh, affordable housing um, for the property. So an end zone is a... Uh, it's set by the Department of Labor in New York State. It's a census tract, and it looks at poverty levels and unemployment, um, and, uh, unemployment levels in that census tract. And if it, that meets certain criteria, it's deemed an end zone. So it's an economically disadvantaged area. Uh, throughout New York City, there are end zones in all five boroughs. Uh, the Bronx does have the majority of the end zones, but you can find them even in Manhattan and upper Manhattan. Interesting. Oh, and I'm sorry. Uh, that will actually allow you to qualify for the tangible property credits in New York City. You so. can still enter the BCP in New York City without the tangible property credits. You just It's not as lucrative in terms of you know, the amount of money you can get back. I got it. I got it. So uh, one of these end zones, you know, what, what type of information do I need in order to apply for this? Uh, it's actually very simple. Uh, the oh, good. S the, the New York State has a uh, GIS map that you can load into Google Earth, and it populates where all of the end zones are in New York State. If your property is at least 50% within an end zone, you can qualify for the tangible property credits. I mean, that's that's to me, it's making it sound more and more enticing. You know, there's more and more opportunity for people to get involved with this program where they could, you know, do something good for the environment, develop a site, and not lose their shirt in the process, you know, with, with these these credits, um, you know, tax incentives. I mean, it's seems it's making it sound more and more worthwhile in my mind. You know, it's just how do you get people to, to be aware of this? You know, I mean, is it how do developers or site owners, uh, what's publicizing this? We publicize it to our clients. Um, a lot of the uh, developers in New York City are very well aware of the program. So they're savvy about it they're, already, they're, but I mean, you they, know. It's they've, they've at least heard about it. I mean, is the state doing anything to, you know, make this program, uh, make people aware of this program? I don't know how to answer that one. I, 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 they have it on their website, Paul. Yeah, I, I don't know right how now. much <laughs> outreach they're, they're, they're actually doing. Um, I think it's really coming from the consultants, the attorneys, um, you know, the people the that construction are in the know. industry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like you said, it's the people that already know about it that are just spreading the word and, and making sure it's being utilized. Yes. Got it. Uh, that does bring up a good question or follow-on point. Um, when, uh, in addition to uh, a, a, an environmental consultant, uh, a developer should have a, uh, a good environmental attorney on their team. Um, it's it's uh, really adds value, um, especially when they're going through the uh, acquisition phase of the, of the project. Um, the language in the purchase sale agreement, which you know, can uh, if if you're not careful, can leave uh, the purchaser with the burden unnecessarily, um, and uh, uh, in in 
dealing with uh, the DEC on the more uh, legal related issues, the, the, the wording in the order on consents, um, and uh, the legal issues at the back end where you might have an environmental easement um, on the property. Uh, you know, an attorney can add some value on, on making I, sure I, that, it, that, that the client I, is, Andy, is covered. Andy, I think that's a, that's a yeah. great, what you just brought up is great. You know, it, it got me thinking right away, you know, uh, besides the environmental consultant like PWGC or an attorney, are there any other key players that have to be part of this BCP, you know, program for an owner to, to develop the site? Care to elaborate on that? Is there is there anyone else like environmental contractors, surveyors, uh, people collecting borings, labs? Who else gets involved with this? Uh, there's a lot of parties that are involved in uh, the Brownfield cleanup program. You actually just named uh, quite a few of them. Um, Didn't mean to steal your thunder, but it just <laughs> I got my mind racing here. Uh, actually, I'd like to bring up uh, one specific group that a lot of people don't think of. It's the surrounding community. Uh, part of the plan is you have to have a community participation plan. That plan is written in plain English for the neighboring community. They don't have to be the science nerds that we are to understand uh, what is going on at the site. And I think this is one of the greatest parts about the program is that you want that community involvement. You want them to participate in this. Um, uh, every time that we do a 30-day public comment period, a notice is sent out to the community so they can be aware of what's going on. We do air monitoring to protect the surrounding community to make sure that the work that is going on the site isn't migrating off the site. Um, and I'm sure the community likes to know that there's a new, you know, probably great development that's coming in that's going to be replacing a property that may have been an eyesore, um, may have been, you know, underutilized, and now they have maybe a new store coming in. They have a new uh, building coming in that they could live in. Uh, it could be new jobs, construction jobs for the construction of that property. Uh, could be affo affordable housing. Affordable housing, yep. Uh, permanent jobs for uh, whatever's the, the new building, if it's a commercial or manufacturing property. There's a lot of great incentives uh, there for the community itself to want that property to be redeveloped. I mean, you keep spurring more and more questions here, but, um, you know, not to take up our time all day and, you know, to keep it brief for our listeners, but... Um, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of benefits here. You know, a lot of people can benefit from this. Um, and, and we did talk about the tax credits. Are there any other benefits just besides the, the financial incentive that, that, that come out of this? Uh, yeah, I would say um, uh, I've already touched on some of them, the removing the eyesore from the area. Yeah, a blight, Cle yeah. sure. Uh, cleaning up a property so that the future occupants are in a property that they know is safe. Um, either the site is cleaned up to a... Uh, unrestricted use, which means it's cleaned up, you know, basically completely, or there are engineering controls uh, put on place to keep that property safe for the future occupants. Um, you know, sometimes we can't get out all the contamination. It's the, the nature of the beast. Um, so we put in controls that help continue to remediate while or protect while, um, you know, the site's in use. So, again, spurring more questions, you know, you mentioned we can't get all the contamination all the time. You know, what dictates or, or mandates where we can stop? Uh, that depends on what our intended use of the property is. You know, we do still want to meet that, uh, the cleanup objectives of that intended use. Sometimes we can't, and so we have to, um, we look at, there's three different tracks of remediation. Uh, track one is the unrestricted use. Uh, that's the cleanest you can get. Uh, track two is a uh, 
has specific site cleanup objectives, restricted residential, commercial, industrial. Uh, and then there's the track four, which is a site-specific cleanup objective. Uh, so the DEC and the DOH work together to come up with the cleanup objectives that that site should meet. And that is going to be based upon the intended use of the property and what engineering controls or institutional controls are put in place. As Andy mentioned, you know, one of those institutional controls is the environmental easement. Uh, that's a document that's going to follow that property if it ever gets sold so that the new owners of the property know what has to continue to be um, enacted at the site to keep it safe. All, all those conditions are usually documented in the remedial action plan. Oh, I'm familiar with those. <laughs> I've seen quite a few in our office. Have you signed or uh, stamped oh, a couple Oh, boy, yeah. Get a PE stamp and you'll, you'll always have work. Um, you know, so you, you brought up another thing that, you know, and I, I get involved with this quite a bit, being an engineer, uh, the engineering controls, you know. Um, can you guys just mention quickly just a, a couple of typical engineering controls that we may put in place at a site um, that will be there for probably quite a while and sometimes you know we, we do reach a point where they're no longer necessary but um, can you just describe a few of those I'd say the most common engineering control is the subslab depressurization system uh, what that does is basically it creates a preferential pathway for contaminated soil vapor beneath the property to reach these pipes that are installed beneath the concrete slab and then it's routed up to above the roof line so basically it can no longer uh, a concrete slab is it's a porous entity um, that soil vapor can can migrate through. So we try to prevent that with the subslab depressurization system uh, by creating that preferential pathway that soil vapor can go into that pipe and then uh, be exhausted up above the roof line uh, so that it will not accumulate inside the building. So. Do we have to treat that exhaust sometimes, or is it okay to just discharge to the atmosphere? What happens then? It depends on the concentration of the contaminants beneath the slab. Uh, at certain levels, we do have to do treatment. A lot of times that is a, uh, a carbon drum, uh, or a lot of times that is a 55-gallon drum of granulated activated carbon. Uh, it's similar to what you might see in your water filter on your tap. Uh, so once the um, uh, contaminated air passes through that filter, uh, it's considered treated and it can be discharged to the atmosphere. Interesting. And what type of regulation or oversight or monitoring has to be done once you put an engineering control in place? Usually there's annual uh, requirements to do a periodic review report. Before we get to that, um, the final report that we prepare for a site uh, after the remediation has been completed is called the final engineering report. If the site does not meet a track one cleanup, usually there is a site management plan that accompanies that final engineering report. Uh, th that site management plan will lay out what you have to do for future activities at the work at the site. Uh, that could include um, uh, annual monitoring of the site. Uh, sometimes it, if you have monitoring wells there in the groundwater, you might have to do quarterly groundwater sampling until you exhibit levels that are low enough to either reduce the frequency of groundwater sampling or eliminate groundwater sampling. And all of that is documented in a periodic review report, uh, which is usually submitted on an annual basis. It involves also an inspection of the property, make sure the use hasn't changed, make sure that the site cover is still in place. Um, and other things, again, the main purpose is to make sure that the occupants of the property are safe. Oh, wow. and, and the site cover is also a very common engineering control. Yeah, that was definitely Jennifer brought that so up. You, you we are familiar, your, yeah. Your building footprint 
concrete sidewalks uh, uh asphalt asphalt parking sure and then typically any landscaped areas or open areas have at least one or two feet of clean unrestricted use uh, a level fill uh, so that there's no direct contact to uh, you know contaminants that we may have left behind in accordance with any approved plans um, uh, but it's not available for people to to come in contact with so are there any limits to how long you have to go into the future with monitoring or sampling or is it just dictated based on how the, the numbers go it, it, it goes on for a while i, I just yeah. got off the phone with someone this morning complaining to me because he has to do another prr and uh prr is what a uh, periodic review report thank you uh, why do i have to do this every year andy why can't we stop doing it <laughs> I'm actually working with a client right now. We have a plan with the DEC and DOH to try to uh, eliminate further investigate, um, further monitoring. Um, you know, it, it's going to take uh, a couple more years to get to that, but we at least have that plan in place to get us there. Wow. I mean, this is this is interesting, this whole Brownfields cleanup program. You guys, we've basically taken from what is a brownfield all the way through the whole process to now we've got the site cleaned up, it's occupied, and we're into simple monitoring and uh, I guess maintenance or periodic review if mm -hmm. you will right and that's essentially the end of it right at least as far as PWGC's involvement I mean the the owners and operators have to continue to, to monitor and maintain and, and uh, you know comply with the regulations but it's it sure is an interesting process guys have any closing thoughts or comments you want to make on a brownfield cleanup program in the last few years uh, BCPs have been uh, a big part of our our, our workload sure yeah, it's, have it's part of our core business at yeah. this point uh, absolutely you know uh, i mean probably yeah, i'd say almost half our technical staff are one way or another involved with that type of work so it's it is impressive uh, i'm glad to see that it's it's going it's progressing in new york city um do you guys see any movement out here on long island with it i mean I, obviously i can see the real strong benefits in new york city but what about for long island people don't consider the off-site liability that's a huge benefit if you don't have to undertake a groundwater plume remediation exiting your site so we are seeing more and more of it on Long Island um, and then I also would just like to throw in that um, uh, there are some other similar type programs to the BCP program specifically in New York City that maybe we'll talk about in a future um, uh, podcast the uh, New York City Office of Environmental Remediation e-designation program, which is very similar to a BCP program, has some um, liability protection benefits. Yes. Uh, there are some uh, uh, grants, I think. Yeah, for some limited grants. I think the max you can get is about $50,000. Yeah. So there's no tangible tax credits associated with it, but it does get you um, – through a, uh, an approved program so that you can get a, uh, uh, a certificate of completion and, and, and construct. It's a little bit different than the BCP program. I don't want to get into it here, but uh, maybe something we can talk about. Yeah, absolutely. It it's keeps spurring more and more thoughts for me. But uh, I, do, I do want to thank you guys today for your time. Jennifer Lewis, our one of our senior project managers, and Andy uh, Lockwood, who is a senior vice president of our environmental unit. 
Uh, and I am Paul Boyce, again, the host, CEO, and president of PWGC. Again, to our listeners, if you've, you've found anything here stimulating or you want to find out more about it, please reach out to us on our website, which again is pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. And we will have more on this topic with upcoming podcasts. And again, I thank everyone for their time.